0: CR101radio.com. Podcasts and more. Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Among the issues surrounding the subject of human life is whether or not someone who is suffering has the right to end his or her own life or seek the help of another to do so. The obvious biblical response is to affirm that God's law instructs that thou shalt not kill, and that would include killing oneself. However, the subject is often an emotional one framed in such a way that if a person has a terminal disease or condition, the most merciful thing to do is to do all that is possible to end that suffering. This is far from an abstract issue, as there are many who suffer from debilitating painful ailments and as many who suffer along with them as their caregivers. Today, I have Cheryl Stansberry with me. Cheryl is a wife, mother, mother, home educator, and someone who is intimately aware of the kinds of circumstances I have just outlined. Her son, Joshua, passed away in early April of 2022 after many years of a debilitating neurological condition. I've asked her to join me to explore the question, can joy be found in suffering? Cheryl, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, before we get into the meat of the question and a discussion on it, tell us a little bit about Joshua and when his condition was diagnosed and a realistic description of what his life, and by extension, your entire family's life consisted of.
1: Joshua. The thing about Joshua is he's always, his smile, he's always had issues since he was younger. He was a failure to thrive baby. He had global delays, but it wasn't until the fall of 2015 that we really started noticing something was wrong. Um, His shoulder was drooping and his painful walk. He was complaining a lot about not being able to walk. It hurt him so much. How old was he then? About 11, I believe. Okay. And it just kept getting worse, and we went to the doctors, and they weren't sure what it was at first. They did all kinds of testing, but as as time went on, they did the scans, and they, they found the excess iron in his brain, and about that same time, he was losing his ability to walk, and they did a swallow study on him, and they said that he wasn't safe to eat normal food anymore, and he couldn't drink and he couldn't eat things that were his favorites, like even pudding. The muscles down his throat were so weak that it would go into his lungs. I and see. he just wasn't growing properly.
0: Okay, so just to configure your family, Joshua was one of four children. Yes. And where is he in the sequence? He was the second oldest. Second oldest. Okay. And when you talk about a failure to thrive, does it mean that he struggled with things like colic as a baby or he had sleep problems? What do, I mean, people hear that term. How did that translate into Joshua's life?
1: He had struggles with weight gain. He was really thin and he started to get really fussy and the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. And of course they, back then they did all sorts of tests and he was just, just a small tiny boy. And, you know, he spent a week at children's while they ran all their tests and they just couldn't figure it out.
0: Okay. So when this all started, how old was he that he started going to children's hospital and things like that? Um, That was about nine months old. Okay. So he probably doesn't have, or didn't have recollection of that. Did you find that as he was becoming more mature and more aware of things that he knew that something that he was experiencing wasn't being experienced by other people?
1: Um, well, for most of his life, he was at a level of four-year-old, but I know watching he was watching children, you know, they'd be playing, running around, and he'd just sit by the window and with a sad look on his face, you know, he couldn't do that anymore.
0: I see. So when you said, um, he related as a four-year-old, do you mean mentally as well as physically or just Um, physically?
1: Mentally and emotionally.
0: Okay. So did Joshua ever talk?
1: A little bit, um, not extensively, um, usually a few words in a sentence, And he could communicate his needs, you know, if he was hungry or in pain, but he didn't talk a whole lot. I see.
0: So he was number two out of four. You got pregnant twice more. What was it like for the family, especially when you're rearing younger children? I imagine the oldest would have memories of what's going on with Josh. How did you introduce that to the younger two?
1: My my daughter, who was two years younger than Joshua, she was like a little mother. Um, she loved helping me take care of him. And my youngest, um, he's 10 now, and at that time, he just he didn't understand. So because Joshua had a mind of a four-year-old, you know, for the longest time, they would play together. Did the medical people ever
0: indicate that this was something that was hereditary or something that happened while you were pregnant? Anything like that? Did they give you a sense of why there would be this accumulation of iron in his brain?
1: Well, the neurodegeneration with brain iron accumulation is called genetic. There's 10 subtypes that are known, but his was idiopathic. They said it was genetic, but they never found the gene responsible.
0: What was it like for you to have your suspicions? And then the more medical diagnoses you got, you might get names for what you were witnessing and experiencing. What was it like for you as a mom with a family to continue to run and having one out of your four children requiring pretty much 24 seven care?
1: It was really hard at first because my oldest, um, he was also globally delayed, Um, but we later found out that he was diagnosed with autism and intellectual disability, and so it was hard because of that. But with my other son, um, he was sort of like a perpetual preschooler for the longest time. You Mm -hmm. know, he would toe walk, and it didn't seem so drastic until you know the six and a half years ago when they dropped the bomb on us with the, this diagnosis and it was really hard to wrap our minds around. I can imagine. Um, Did you ever
0: feel guilty that somehow you or you and your husband together had contributed to this situation?
1: It just came up because we didn't quite understand how we could have one son with issues and now another son with issues. It was just hard because we didn't know where it was coming from. We were never given any solid diagnosis, just suspicions and more testing and more visits. And it was just extremely frustrating.
0: I can imagine having known people that have not the exact same situation, but similar enough, it'd be one thing if they could be given a a rule book that's, okay, this is going to be number one, then this will be number two and have the map laid out but that's not usually how it happens. Usually a mom, in my experience, noticed something's not quite right. And then the process of investigating it, and then trying to find medical people who not only are competent, but will listen. I once had a a pediatrician who told me that mothers were the best resources a pediatrician could have because mothers know their children. So did you find that you had medical support Extended family support and even a church community or your own community in the area, your neighborhood, or whatever that was supportive? Or did you find people kind of standoffish?
1: Where we lived, we lived out in the country and we had to drive into town an hour to go to church. And even then, we had a few people in the church, like our elder. He was very, very supportive, Uh, he was always there. Whenever we had to go to the hospital, they were just a huge support. But our family, um, they moved to to Montana shortly before a a lot of the issues came up. And so we didn't quite have the family support that we used to have when the kids were younger. And because we were so far out, we didn't have a whole lot of support. And that really made it hard.
0: So if you could do those years over, obviously, yes, let's have nobody be sick. Everybody be well. But I'm talking in terms of um, advice to somebody who might find themselves in this situation. Any retrospective, you know, I think I would have done this differently.
1: I think my hardest thing was that I kept my eyes off of God for the longest time. I worried about my situation. I worried about people who weren't there for me. And I think that just made it harder. It was when I started reading the Puritans. It really helped me through those dark times. And I started looking to God to support me instead of thinking all these people should be supporting me. I mean, there was another kid, similar things to Joshua, and they had a huge support. And for the longest time, you know, I felt really bad that I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. So looking back, I probably should have kept my eyes on Jesus a whole lot more because comparing myself, you know, wishing something was different. I wasn't very content and it just made things all the much harder.
0: You said you read the Puritans, anything specific that comes to mind?
1: Um, Jeremiah Burroughs, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. That book just, it really grabbed me.
0: Yes, that is a good one. And I've had that recommended many times. And that was actually my reading material during the pandemic. And even when I myself got COVID, it's funny how easy it is to be discontented without recognizing all the benefits you have. Suffering comes along and... I guess our first knee jerk reaction is, I don't want to suffer. Who wants to suffer? But the, the question I posited at the beginning is, can joy be found in suffering? And you commented that Joshua always had a smile on his face. And I've seen photos. Was it a genuine smile or was it the kind of thing that people might say, Oh, well, that's just how his muscles are reacting to his problems.
1: When I ask people, Um, after he died, what, you know, how he had impacted their life. The first thing they said is his smile. He was always smiling. I have these pictures of him in the hospital when he had surgery after surgery, and he's just always smiling. You come into the room, he smiles. He reaches out his arms to give you a hug. That's just who he was. So I imagine if he would flash a
0: smile, there were times like he probably wasn't smiling when he was sleeping. And there were probably times that you saw a smile happen. This We're not talking about a painted expression on his face. You're talking about a recognition when he saw someone that there would be a smile.
1: Yes, there was pure joy in his eyes. He had such a simple face. Uh, he loved people. Before, when he was still able to walk, he'd walk up to complete strangers and give them a hug and smile, and they would tell us afterwards that he really made our day.
0: Wow. So I imagine that the last bit before Josh actually passed was probably a bit more dramatic than the day-to-day struggles that you experienced. Can you share a little bit about his final months?
1: Around December, um, you could really see that he was going downhill. He used to love eating, you know, snack packs and puddings and applesauce, and it got to the point where he could hardly swallow anymore. Um, he used to be able to sit at the table prior to that, and he wasn't able to even hold his head up. He was in so much pain, and, you know, those smiles, they were so rare, and he had gotten a new wheelchair. We put him in it, and... He just looked miserable. It was just so hard. And he didn't want to do a lot of things that he did before play and move around. He just sort of laid there. And he was, it was hard because in those moments, it was almost like he had a foot on the other side of eternity because he started speaking about angels and he started asking about heaven. And it's like, even though for the longest time he had the mindset of a four-year-old, those last few months, it was almost like he was, you know, his 17-year-old self. And he was understanding that, you know, the time was getting close and he was ready to go meet Jesus. He was very excited about that.
0: So throughout all this, you didn't treat him as someone who didn't need to learn. It sounds like for him to understand about Christ and to uh, understand about heaven, even though he had issues, you continued to be a homeschool mom to Joshua.
1: Yes. He, he loved learning. He loved drawing and playing with his blocks and he loved being read to. He especially loved listening to hymns. They really calmed him down. His favorite was, it is well with my soul. So tell me a
0: little bit about, obviously, there's a lot that has to be done. If you're going to go anywhere as a family, you have to have the necessary equipment for him. You have to get him into the wheelchair. You you probably had to have a special van that he could be transported in. Did you ever experience looks or helpful advice, and I'll put that in quote, from people who sort of said, wouldn't it be better if God had taken him sooner? Did, did you ever have well-meaning people who would say in a with a smile on their face, this would be better if he wasn't still alive?
1: No, I think people looked more on us like with a little pitying look. But I think Joshua's smile disarmed him a lot because whenever he'd see people, he just... Have a smile on his face.
0: I see. Did you ever have medical people make suggestions in terms of lessening the stress on your own family? You know, if you did this particular thing, this would all be over. Because I know sometimes when people have an adverse prenatal diagnosis, they have medical people heavily encouraging abortion. Did you ever experience anything like that?
1: No, but I did have a a doctor really, we were discussing um, his spinal surgery and the doctor told us, he's like, it probably won't increase his quality of life. So, you know, you may not want to do the surgery. Did you do the surgery? We did. And how did
0: that turn out?
1: It was really hard at first. And then a few weeks later, we were back in the hospital because he developed an infection and so he had to go on a round of antibiotics and he was there for another week. But when we talked to the other doctors, they agreed that it was definitely the best decision and it helped him breathe better because he was basically bent in half. He had a 90 degree lordosis and it was affecting his lungs. And other doctors disagreed with the doctors who didn't think it was going to improve his quality of life because they said that it obviously did.
0: So tell me a little bit of your take on what is quality of life? I mean, people can talk about this abstractly academically, but does your definition of quality of life have to change as things like this progress? Or was it more a question of once you got back into the word that you found that you were defining that differently?
1: Well, I remember reading an account of a a girl who had a serious illness and she didn't agree with the quality of life thing, and she had help with the doctors and to kill herself. And even then, it was, I just could not agree with it. To me, it's not about quality of life. It's about serving, honoring, and glorifying God. And, you know, Joshua, throughout all his pain, you know, he, he had a simple childlike faith, and he loved church. He loved singing the hymns as best he could. He loved his pastor. He loved God. He just exhibited joy. And, you know, he suffered so much for so long. But I'd say his quality of life is a whole lot more than many of us have, even when we're well. Do
0: you have a sense, because it doesn't sound like he had maybe a sophisticated way of explaining it. Do you know the kind of pain he would be in in terms of how he would physically suffer?
1: I could see it on his face. Most of the time, you know, he would say he was in pain, he hurt. But on those times, his face, you could tell. And the really bad times, he'd had this really piercing cry. it's like a scream. And it would just shatter my heart.
0: I can imagine. Now, my understanding, and this is a rather simplistic way to talk about it, but none the same, that pain usually comes when circulation in an area is compromised. With the way his body was distorted, was that going to be causing um, organ failure because of the inability to have good circulation? Sure.
1: I think it was more like a stiffness and contractures. The dystonia was pulling on his spine. The one, um, he had a complete spinal fusion, so from all the top to bottom. And it would pull on him and it would constrict his throat to where he could barely breathe. He would, it would just contort him. And
0: I see. Was his condition such that someone had to be awake and
1: up with him at night? I would stay up with him. I'd put him to bed and I'd stay up for a while. We had a baby monitor So if he woke up in the middle of the night, which this last year he did a lot, he'd wake up screaming, you know, I'd be right there to give him medication, rub his back and comfort him until he fell asleep again.
0: I see. So once you had a sense that you were on a downward trend here, so there was medication that he could take to ease his pain?
1: Yes, we tried, um, a lot, um. Shortly before he died, his we found out that his baclofen pump malfunctioned, so he was going into withdrawal, and by then, his pain was excruciating. Oh, I see. So I'm, I, I'm familiar
0: with that, but I'm not sure my listeners are. Explain the baclofen pump.
1: Um, the baclofen pump helps with the dystonia, and he had had it installed back in August in 2018 because the dystonia was getting really bad. He was just you know, shaking and contorting everywhere. And he got to where it would attack his throat and he couldn't breathe very well or eat. Or I see. So tell me a little bit about the other
0: kids in terms of did, you know, you're a mom of four because one requires a lot of care doesn't mean that one is more important than the other's. Um, in some families I've witnessed, there's resentment. Uh, one family that I had a very close relationship with, um, one of the children ended up being anorexic and bulimic. As a mom, as the one who's keeping the ship afloat, you know, your husband keeps the ship afloat financially and things like that. but you're the household manager. Tell me a little bit what it was like making sure each of the children got mom.
1: A lot of the times my husband and I would trade off and we'd spend extra time with one kid or two. And we also tried to do a lot of family things together when we were able to make sure that each kid felt like they were getting attention. The kids were actually pretty good about helping take care of him. They loved to include him when they were outside playing, like on the trampoline. We'd put him up there and they'd bounce around him and, or they'd play cars or just play out in the dirt with them
0: you were I pretty see. good about that. Well that's good. Um that says a lot about the training and the atmosphere or the society of your household because I've seen it go the other way. So again, the reason I asked you to come on is that not only do I know people who are going through the kinds of things you're going through, there be, might be people who don't know it but a circumstance like this is Right around the corner for them, or even a couple of years down the road. So, they're probably good days and bad days. How do you mark them in terms of getting through them?
1: Um, One thing I've learned a lot is that God never wastes pain, He brings so much good out of the hardest situations. Um, You know, with my, with Joshua, with my son with autism, and my husband was in a bad car accident few years ago, um, all these trials they 've taught us so much, and they 've caused us to lean on Christ more than ever. I mean, the days have been really hard, but you know i wouldn 't trade the experiences for anything because God is making me more like Christ every day.
0: Mhm, so I can almost hear people thinking. <laughs> Okay. So she's saying that retroactively or retrospectively. And that's a good thing because we often learn things retrospectively. But when you're in the midst of it, you're, you're having a bad day. Husband's having a bad day. Things aren't going well. The dishwasher breaks. The car breaks down. How do you center yourself again? Because you can't just say, you know what? It's six o'clock at night. I'm going to bed that you don't have that luxury based on the circumstances you had in your life?
1: Yeah, we definitely had the ups and downs. And when the days got really hard, I'd listen to the songs, you know, Hillary Scott's I Will Be Done, you know, Casting Grounds, Praise You in the Storm. You know, I'd cry. I'd, I'd have this like inner monologue where I'm praying all the time. You know, I'd get down on my knees. I'm like, Lord, please take this. You know, I just... It was a constant. But every time, you know, God would give me exactly what I need. You know, the the verse, you know, my grace is sufficient. It was. We just took one day at a time, one moment at a time. And I suppose you can't really learn one day at a time
0: until that's all you can do is one day at a time. If, If we think that we can we can cram for life. it sounds like you learned you can't cram for life. You have to take it as you receive it.
1: Yes, and I think is the more that you go through, the more you're able to withstand. You, you still have the days that are so hard, it just feels like you're starting all over again, but you just emerge stronger, the
0: stronger faith. You know what a lot of people don't know, Cheryl, and I learned this from a friend who had a son who had cancer and they were dealing with that. And the social worker who was dealing with them at the hospital suggested that she and her husband get a divorce because then they would be eligible for greater financial aid. But she also told them that it's not uncommon when you have a child that has tremendous medical needs and needs a lot of care that sometimes that actually disrupts a marriage and it's not even unlikely that people get divorced. So, for those listening who might be in the midst of this, how do you maintain your marriage, your relationship with your husband in the midst of this?
1: We're married, my husband and I made an agreement that divorce would never be an option. We've kept to that um, every trial we've had since the boys were babies um, just one trial after another we would depend on God and depend on each other and that's just how we got through it and the, there were a lot of hard times but because divorce was never an option we chose to work through it and we prayed together a lot and we pray as a family
0: you know, it's interesting when you say before the trouble came, you determined that you neither one of you were going to quit this relationship. Do you think this is something that at the time when you made that commitment, you even had an inkling of how that commitment would be tested?
1: Even before the kids were born, I was like, Lord, please give me some more patience. Right. And, you know, he gave me that in spades.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I counsel a lot of young women, some of which who just got married. And (laughs) their shock is it isn't like the Hallmark movies. It isn't happily ever after. One woman said, I I have to be with this person 24 I didn't figure how much of a struggle that would be. So marriage in and of itself gives us opportunities for patience and long-suffering Do you feel, in a sense, you worked that marital muscle so that by the time your first two children came, or both of whom needed extra special care, that you were more ready for it? It's as though you had lifted the
1: weights? From the very beginning, we were just determined. Like my oldest, the one who has autism, he actually had hydrocephalus as a baby. So early on, we started enduring trial after trial, and with each trial, we just learn to depend more and more on God and more and more on each other. And I think throughout the whole ordeal, we just become stronger. we you know, all these trials reveal our weaknesses and our sins, and we're able to work on them.
0: So I imagine you heard a lot of, I'm sorry for your loss, but... During times like this, Paul's admonition that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Did that have special meaning for you at this point?
1: It did. Um, Those last two months were really hard. And I actually was praying to God every night for two months that he would take him home. I could see how much pain he was in. And I knew that the time was getting close and I kept imagining, you know, my son who could barely talk, he couldn't walk. He was in so much pain that he would step into eternity with no pain. He could walk, he could run, he could be with Jesus. He loved God so much and he was ready.
0: Well, that's beautiful. And I know that. Just the amount of time that you had to partition in your day. I imagine there's a big hole right now. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Fifteen and a half years. Doctor visits, the therapies, the hospital stays, the surgeries. I'd have to change him, give him his medication, feeding through the G tube. And when he was gone, it just. It was like, what do I do with myself now? Because I spent a huge portion of my time taking care of him because he wasn't able to.
0: Well, I experienced that myself. My mom had been sick from the time I was in seventh grade till the time I was a sophomore. And then many, many years later, my mother-in-law came to live with us. And I don't think you can appreciate until... There's the absence of your need to care for someone, how much you benefit from being a caregiver. Um, yes, it's hard. And oftentimes people sort of don't pay attention that the caregiver has got issues and needs for support as much as the person who's ill. Don't you find that this is what you had to go through with Josh and your older son and just life in general? It's sort of like you got a PhD, <laughs> as opposed to all those people who go to school for years and years and years, but don't get to experience what you did.
1: I always think back to the Puritans when they talk about being in the school of Christ, how they deal with afflictions. And I think through everything, um, God is actually preparing me to serve. He's placed in my heart a desire for hospitality and as a writer you know possibly you know leading bible studies just servant evangelism he's just he's taken what i went through and he's turning it around and he's going to make it into something beautiful and i really believe that's what he's doing
0: i often think that if i hadn't gone through a lot of the things i went through as a young girl i wouldn't see What other people were going through. I I remember distinctly, it was the beginning part of my sophomore year of high school when my mom passed and I was in the girls room and two of the, my classmates were talking. They didn't know I was in there. I was in one of the stalls and they were saying, I just don't know what to say to her. I mean, I, I feel bad, but I don't think I'll say anything. And inside of me, it was like, no, I want you to say something. Please don't ignore me. I would rather you listen then think I'm too fragile. And I think that experience has come to serve me when I can see maybe where others can't when someone's hurting, whether they're the caregiver, a sibling, or the person who's suffering herself or himself. And like you indicated, why would we trade the, the understanding and the wisdom that comes from that saying, well, If I had had an easier life and this wasn't so painful, my life could be totally different. I would say, yeah, it could have been, but not necessarily better.
1: I think through all of this, I've become more compassionate with how others are going through things because I know how hard things were um, when people, they don't know what to say. um, And to them, I say, say something. (laughs) Right, right. I know a, a lot of times after we've been in the hospital when people would, you know, call and visit, but the months afterwards, people weren't around as much anymore and it was harder to go it alone. And, and now that I've been through all that, you know, I look at other people hurting and, you know, I know a lot of people support them in the time of crisis, but afterwards they don't. And, you know, my heart's being drawn to the people that have suffered loss. After the initial time, people aren't there anymore. And my desire is to still reach out to them because I understand what it felt like.
0: And I think um, it's not that people don't mean well, but let's face it, Cheryl, you can just eat so many casseroles. And a lot of times people think the issue is, okay, we'll give you food. And I think it's good, especially with a family that you have food and you don't have to worry about that. But I think they miss the fact that what you need and want at that point is human contact and not, you don't only want people to come who are going to say brilliant and insightful things. Sometimes you want someone who's just going to hang out with you. And sometimes you want someone who'll just listen.
1: That's exactly right. Um, I think if people just, you know, write a little note and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. I am praying for strength, you know, be a little bit sp- specific what they're praying about, just letting them know that they care. It really goes a long way. And I even think
0: sending a funny picture, hearing a joke, something that you think you're mutually interested in, it doesn't always have to be so heavy and so meaningful. It could say, we're just living.
1: That's exactly right. I, you know, I'm a big fan of ferrets and dachshunds and I would love it when my friends would just you know drop an email or a message you know with a little picture of a dachshund and it just it really made my day. You know your friends what they like, and you know they just need a little note of encouragement, you know something to laugh at or something they enjoy.
0: So I saw on your Facebook feed that your family is intentionally planning ways that you will continue to celebrate. Joshi, as you call him tell us a little about that
1: um well last year before we moved to montana I came up with a bucket list idea for my son um we had hoped to go visit around montana because there was a lot to do and it's a really big state um unfortunately my mom had developed heart problems last summer and had to have open heart surgery so we were very limited in what we could do and At the time, my husband was still in Denver finishing up his work. So I was pretty much left on my own with the kids, so we did what we could. But we came up with all these ideas that we were going to do, and we're planning to pick it up again this summer. We're getting a little late start, but um, our next trip, we're going to Helena. Um, We're going to the gates of the mountains, and we're going to rent a hotel room for the night. And So we're just going to, you know, plan as much as we can this summer to visit museums and go hiking and fishing and camping and visit some caves and just do what we can. And we're going to carry on Joshua's bucket list because he loved when he was able to get out and do things. And so we're going to carry on his memory because we've had a a really hard last three or so years and we really need this as a family.
0: I think that's really good. Because you're not going to forget him, although God intended that he was going to have 17 plus years and no more. So none of it is untimely. It's how God intended it, don't you think?
1: Well, most definitely.
0: <laughs> so what would you say if, if I said, okay, now the, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to sum up not only what you've learned, but advice you might give to people whether they're experiencing this issue or they're on the peripheral and ways in which to help. I'll let you finish it off with some words of wisdom coming from experience.
1: In the last few years, Romans 8, 20, 28 has really become, you know, living for our family. Um, we know that everything that we experience is because God ordains it. And some of it is really, really hard, but God never wastes pain. He's always going to bring something good out of it, if anything, just to make him more like himself. But he uses us to touch people. You know, people see what we're going through. And when we stop and give praise and glory to God, they're amazed. Everybody that we touch with Joshua's story, it just gets spread. And he's done so much. In our lives, uh, I can, when you can trace his hand, it's just everything. It makes a difference keeping our eyes off of ourselves and our pain and keeping it on him. You know, we learn gratitude, contentment in our situation because we know that God is sovereign and those days are going to be hard, but he's always going to be there. Yes. You know, death is
0: an enemy. And whether it happens unexpectedly, someone's in a car accident or in a situation like Joshie's that was a progressive ailment that continued to get worse, our life has purpose. Our days have been ordained for us. And what you said in terms of recognizing the sovereignty of God, no accidents, nobody has fallen out of God's date book and say, oh, my goodness, I forgot about him or I forgot about her that we grow to the degree that we get to live out surrendering our lives to Christ. And I think your story is probably like many other stories, but I appreciate you sharing it because very rarely do we get to hear people express honestly what it was like and what it's like now after the loved one has passed. So Cheryl, I thank you and- I know you're on Facebook, so I suppose if there are people who want to find you and they can talk with you, I imagine when you said you're going to be willing to be a resource, that there might be people who will call you and say, I need to talk to someone. Are you open to that?
1: Definitely. I think it's what God has been preparing me for. I really want to be there for others who are going through hard times. Oh, very good.
0: Well, listeners, I hope you've been encouraged by. The sobriety of the story, but at the same time, hearing someone say that God was for her, and so circumstances, no matter how much they seemed could be against her, that she could stand and that she was able to learn what it meant to live day by day. Cheryl, I think you'd agree each day had enough trouble of its own. (laughs) Most definitely. Most definitely. All right, listeners, thanks for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to uh, reach me and give a comment, you can do so at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.